This is Plug's Play Pedagogy, episode 12, Video Didn't Kill the Composition Student. And I want to start by telling a little bit of a story. And it's actually a bit of a confession because I sometimes use video in my composition classes, but I think I use it in a really wimpy way. And I say that because um, when I think of the things I've seen other people doing with video, having students go out and uh, record with their cell phones or record with cameras or um, even uh, write really complex scripts to think through what could I do if I was writing um, or creating a movie of some kind and, and sending meaning that way. What I tend to do is much, much, much more simple. I, I tend to do um, screencasting where I say, okay, students, you know, you could go to um, Screencast-O-Matic or you could download a trial version of Snagit or Camtasia and you can record your screen and talk over it. Um, but I tend to find myself downplaying it. I say, no, 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 it's okay. Don't worry. Don't, don't freak out. Don't freak out. It's going to be fine. Uh, just, just remediate an essay that you already read, wrote in words. Um, or I say, just make one little paragraph of your essay a video, you know, so like write the whole thing out and then put a little place for, ooh, this is a place where video would work. And so I, I'm thinking a lot these days about why I take that apologetic tone. So today's episode is in some ways directed at me as the, the person who thinks of myself as a, as a hip multimodal composition instructor and yet doesn't always go the full Monty with everything that I, I want to do. So I brought on a co-editor for today's episode. I really want to introduce you to John Silvestro. John, who are you? I am a PhD candidate at Miami University, working on my dissertation on circulating compositions with a particular passion for video, particularly video pedagogy, where I've used it in first-year composition courses going on my fifth year now, but I've also used them in a higher level kind of digital rhetoric courses for sophomores and juniors working kind of across discipline. So John, I think you're the perfect person to help me think through the way I am the way I am, right? I kind of think of myself as hip and yet don't always, why am I keep calling it hip? I don't know. But but I don't always do the the more technically challenging things with my students. Um, do you ever find yourself in that boat where you're not sure how far to, to push them? Yes. I mean, all the time. And I admit, too, that like my first year of teaching, like I was super passionate about video, but I was also like super afraid of it. Like I didn't um, I just didn't know what to do. It just seems so overwhelming and terrifying. And there was all these different requirements and different things. And I know I just like I totally backed away and just ended up having them do like a PowerPoint presentation and just totally like I was an even bigger wimp the first time I faced video than you. That makes me feel really good. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Great. Um, but, and then it was just... But you found something, right? You, you've, you, something has made you continue to do this and continue to use it in class and to continue studying it. Yes. And it was really thinking about things like scripts, but also just thinking about what my students had access to and even the possibilities of video that I kind of latched into and then kind of built upon and kind of started doing specific smaller things and then kind of building outwards into kind of like larger projects. I like that. The, this, this visual in my mind of, of, you know, starting with this small little hill and then putting some more dirt on that hill and putting some more dirt until you have this like awesome mountain of all, all kinds of stuff. Um, it's interesting that I, that it almost sounds like an animation and that sounds like a video that we, we could make here. Of dirt piling over a camera, over a student, over another camera. And then it's eventually just this big, 
yeah. wheel or something. I really hope someone listens to this and does that and like animates this for us and like that that'll be like our super famous YouTube breakthrough. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> dot dot dot. So you're here as as co-editor of this episode for for a really good reason. You've had a, a lot of involvement in pulling this stuff together. Um, first, we're going to hear an extended interview that you had with Jason Palmieri. Certainly. So Jason is currently the uh, director of first-year composition at Miami University. Um, I should also add the asterisk that he is the co-chair on my dissertation. Yeah, I, I think. I think of his book and a, a lot of his work has been really, really inspirational to, to people who want to do not just video, but want to do remixing stuff, want to do multimodal stuff in general. So I, he's definitely someone I'm really excited that we have, have as part of this episode. Um, after we're going to hear the interview you did with him, we're going to hear a little bit of, of work you've done in your class, right? Yes. I'm going to offer something that's kind of an in-between, something that can both lead to that, can kind of transition out of like writing or other other forms of composition and go into video, or it can be an end of itself that enables students to kind of deal with video, but kind of from the comfort of writing. That's really exciting because I think, again, the people like me who are um, inclined to be wimpy <laughs> will we'll really, really love that. And then at the end, we're going to hear a segment from Crystal Van Coten going over a little bit of the, the scholarship about video in the classroom. So uh, we're, we're, in a sense, we're moving from uh, some theory stuff into some specific praxis with yours and then a little bit back to some more theory before we're all done. Right. She kind of offers an even grander vision, I think. So we go from Jason and then we go into myself into a very practical way to do this. And then she kind of offers this big, expansive, the mountain to our kind of little dirty anthill we were talking about before <laughs> of all these just fascinating different ways to kind of do uh, video projects, both from kind of the small scale, but even to the bigger kind of motivating reasons to do video projects. Yeah, that's really exciting. Again, I I feel like with this show, I'm I'm so often my my own audience. I'm the person who's who gets to learn all this stuff from the people I talk to. So I'm really really glad. So let's move uh, formally into part one: interview with Jason Palmieri. start with when did you first teach video what was the class why did you teach video what did it replace i didn't really start teaching video um, actually until i got to miami in my first year i was teaching both first year composition and advanced composition class um, in both of those um, i had a very kind of open-ended video project. In first-year composition at the time, the final project was design your own project, and people could design any sort of thing they wanted to write about of any type in any medium. So this was the students? Um, or the, the students. Okay. And I actually narrowed it to essentially make a video, make a video about something you're passionate about to an audience you care about. We're going to learn some movie maker and some my movie along the way and talk about the craft of video editing and have a lot of reflection and go. Um, and it was pretty similar in the advanced composition class, except I was teaching that as more of a creative nonfiction workshop. So it was either re envision one of your earlier essays in video form or do a work of creative nonfiction or documentary in video form, but on a sort of new topic of your area of interest. Um, and... 
It was really exciting. I mean, what I saw is that there was a lot of passion for, from students for making videos, that they had um, a real sense of audience. Um, even though in this time period, not that many were distributing online yet. You know, it was still... Streaming video online is still a little hard to do, but we would have showings in class on the final day in addition to all the peer workshopping. Um, and then there was sort of sharing around with the people that you knew. Um, but I think the experience of trying to teach a new medium and a more popular medium that students had some investment in really helped me develop that kind of pedagogical sense and kind of open those dialogues and, you know, share um, a lot more of the responsibility for evaluating what good means with students, making it more of a collective conversation, you know, us all bringing in videos that we think are interesting and, and working with them. So you're kind of saying, like, access needs to be a part of any video pedagogy, not even just access for the students as producers, but even thinking about access for audiences and yeah. people? Yeah, I do think that that is definitely true, um, you know, thinking through the question of captioning video production mm -hmm. as well um, and the importance of doing that for things to be accessible to everyone. Um, certainly the other thing that I would say is that video does not necessarily require expensive and new technologies. Um, it does require a certain level of access that many people don't have, but... Um, really amazing video can be made on quite a few different kinds of cell phones now, even edited on those cell phones yeah. and uploaded on those cell phones. And so I do think that we also um, definitely need to avoid sort of fetishizing a kind of professional media aesthetic and mm. instead be thinking about um, teaching people to make vernacular video, amateur video, which has its own aesthetic, and there are ways you can go wrong aesthetically in an amateur video community, but it's something that's a bit more reachable with a diverse variety of tools that we might have. Um, at the same time, obviously, we need to keep advocating for more access within our institutions and also pushing back against narratives that students already have this, like that we still need to be keeping open labs, that we still need to be purchasing and updating new cameras for people and not assuming that everyone just has a camera in their pocket because that's not necessarily true. What do you think the baseline is for a video project in kind of a composition course? Well, it's partly as to whether or not it's a mandated video project or one of a series of options out there. Um, but I think, ideally, you need to be in an environment in which everyone has the ability to both shoot and edit video, or perhaps download and edit video, mm -hmm. if it's sort of a more remixed form of composition. Um, and that probably means that everyone has access to a computer. But, you know, I can take somewhat of an expansive sense of what a computing device means. Um, but I wouldn't just say a cell phone, because of course cell phones come in a variety of ranges and capabilities. Yeah. Um, but I do think that um, going forward, we need to be paying even more attention to the cell phone as a composing device, um, as something that is increasingly ubiquitous and that has you know, many capabilities. Um, and in many cases, that may mean Access to teaching in labs, you know, at my campus, it often has meant teaching in classrooms where all students bring their own laptops, but that is not something that I know is accessible on every campus. 
And so that, that remains, that definitely remains an issue. So a question I was thinking about, and I know you've kind of started hinting at this as well, is like, what would you say in terms of video was like your greatest success? I would say probably the best project I've ever done with video has come out of um, a humanities and technology class that I have taught. It's sort of a 100 level. It was kind of designed as a digital humanities class. When I taught it, I taught it as a bit more of a intro to new media theory and practice. So we read a lot of new media theorists from across different disciplines and um, also then engaged in making new media. And I had kind of a scaffolded video sequence in there. So early on, when we were reading a lot of stuff about participatory culture, um, you know, even looking at also stuff of like some of Michael Wesh's work on YouTube and things like that, um, I had a online video participation project. And I was just like, you got to pick a genre of online video and make something in that genre. And, you know, I gave them a bunch of different genres, the political video remix, the recut movie trailer, the personal vlog, the, you know, and just we created a list together. They would come in with different genres I'd never heard of and kind of have to articulate what are, you know, the let's play video, you know, just many different genres that were existing at, at YouTube at whichever time this course was taught. Um, and their goal was just to make a video in that genre and write a reflection sort of articulating how they're building on those genre conventions, but also how they're doing something novel that might actually find an audience. Um, and I think what made that project so great is that I did not try to make them make the kind of video I want to make. Like, I didn't try to have them make the particular social justice kind of video I want to make. I didn't try to have them make the video that was actually an academic argument. I was just like, your goal here is to participate kind of ethnographically in the online video community and to do it through making as a kind of participant observer. And I'm still evaluating sort of, is there a sense of craft? Can you sell me on, I actually made this thing. Um, But I'm as much evaluating your ability to articulate in a reflection, you know, what you've learned about the process of genre, what you've learned about online video. Um, So first of all, the projects were really quite good. (laughs) Um, And I think what was also helpful is everyone learned how to edit video from this project in a pretty low stakes kind of way. Like I made it, I think it was only worth like a relatively small portion of the grade. I made it pretty clear that, um, you know, I was going to be focused more on the reflection and just a sense of did they do that genre, you know, but not, but expecting this to be kind of an attempt. Um, And so it was a really low stakes way to get them learning about video. So then... When I turned to the final project, there I wanted them to make an argument about new media. And I wanted them to use a form of new media. And I encouraged video. I was like, use video. Here's the assignment for essentially making a new media argument in video. And then talk to me if you want to use another form of media. I'll probably I'll probably go for that. We'll just have to work out your requirements. And so first of all, I think one thing that was helpful is when we started this project, everyone already had a baseline for video editing and even a language for talking about some of the craft of it. So we didn't have to spend time at the, on the technical stuff as much then and really could spend time on, on honing the argument. And I got some really interesting projects out of there. Like I remember a project that used video to think about new media and the concept of the filtering of identity and drawing connections between like auto-tuning 
and Photoshop and Facebook as different sort of identity templates that in certain ways kind of flatten presentations of identity and kind of lead to a sort of reinforce a kind of normativity um, that was really pretty interesting. I had, you know, people making really kind of cool documentaries about like social media and its impact upon relationships among college students, you know, going out interviewing people about how their sense of how social media was kind of mediating their interactions. Um, you know, I had some interesting kind of creative remix projects kind of getting into using found footage and trying to make arguments about post-humanism. Um, one of which actually got released on Reddit and got like 10,000 views out there. Partly because the connection to post-humanism was was more in the reflection. It was still definitely in, in it, but more in a creative way, trying to think through that. But I do, where I felt good about that is it was a class where we really had time to focus in on video production and really kind of value that in a, in a strong way. Um, and, you know, for that one, I really placed the emphasis more on the video product itself and less on the reflection. Like, the first time, I was sort of like, this is a try. And partly because you're going to be working in genres, some of which maybe I don't even participate in. Like, to a certain extent, you're going to have to, like, do the work of just telling me why it's good. <laughs> Whereas in this one, you know, uh, we were trying to create something that was making an argument about some of the issues of... Um, the course, you know, broadly themed on kind of how our technology is kind of influencing what it means to be human writ large <laughs> into a variety of sub-questions. And uh, I found a lot of engagement in those projects, and I think um, relatively high quality along the way. Um, and I think it was that kind of scaffolded approach um, to video. And, you know, it's also somewhat significant that, you know, part of the freedom in that class is it was not defined as a writing class. Mm -hmm. There was definitely writing in it. I was using, you know, I wasn't just doing video. We did, like, an ongoing response thing. There was kind of a more new media analytical paper at a certain point. But I didn't feel like at the end of the day I, I really had promised the university to be teaching alphabetic writing in that class. And I think that freed mm -hmm. up. Um, kind of the balance of time I felt like I could dedicate to working um, with video in that space. So in that great long answer, you articulated a lot of different like theories and approaches and pedagogies that can kind of go into video. You talked about social justice, you talked about publics and counterpublics, you talked about new media theory, about informal writing, and you kind of spelled out all these different theories that can go into teaching video. So I wonder, though, is there, to kind of go back to this, like, baseline question, do you think there is, like, a baseline set of new theories that teachers have to introduce to teach video, or given a lot of, like, the common, like, process pedagogy and ethos, pathos, and logos and the rhetorical canon, do you think those can be used to teach video, or do teachers need to introduce new theories and practices? I think... I mean, that's definitely a tough question, because um, it's sort of both and. Um, but I think what I would say is, especially in the context of teaching um, video in a rhetoric and writing class, I think it's important to start by grounding it in rhetorical principles and process principles uh, that we've been learning all along. And this, this is thinking first-year composition, but also thinking of the place of video within a professional writing major, too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and 
you know, I do think that questions of rhetorical appeals um, definitely map into video quite well. Um, I think, you know, thinking through even... The, the thing is, is that how those appeals work is different. You know, for example, questions of arrangement map into video quite well, except, you know, I've seen certainly in video projects that my students have made and things I've seen other students have made, you see people making the five-paragraph essay video. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, just the five-paragraph essay is not that of a, effective um, of an organization for writing. It's really not that great for video either. Um, and I think this is something that Alexander and Rhodes is on multimodality does some critique of too. So I think even if the idea of purposely arranging the text for an audience transfers from writing to video. What arrangement means in terms of video is obviously really different. I mean, first you're thinking about arranging not just one after the other, but layering often image, text, and sound at the same time. And what do those juxtapositions going on at the same time mean? Um, And obviously you're working with genre conventions. So I find that, you know, when I think about that, you know, when I talked about the successful project of kind of the online video participation project, it was really that transferable concept of genre that was helpful to us to kind of teach ourselves what it would mean to make video. Like, the recut movie trailer also has a series of conventions that make it a recut movie trailer, partly because it is also hacking the conventions of the movie trailer itself, which you have to understand as well. Um, and it is that iterative process of learning how to compose a kind of text by analyzing lots of samples of that genre. And also, I think the equivalent of things like free writing and informal writing, like having stages early on, you know, one thing I always do with video projects is I have people make a zero draft. Like, right after the project is assigned, you come in with, like, 30 seconds of video. Any type. doesn't, but you, you have to start making a video right away. So that, and articulated as just as you do a free write, it might not be the final paper at all, but the process of making helps you see the project. Like, I think that transfers really well. And if anything, I think one of my hopes is to try to figure out how can that transfer back is, like, that sense of free play that sometimes people can get making a video. Not everyone has that experience by any means, but at least I get making a video, and I feel like some I've seen some students really get It's like, you can have that kind of playful, I'm just going to go in and start making some stuff and figure it all out later, um, sense in writing, too. In fact, that's what we're trying to cultivate. And so I think ideas of composing process definitely matter. I think you do need a theory and to be teaching thinking about the affordances and constraints of a particular technology. Um, But I think that's something that we ought to be bringing to our teaching of alphabetic writing as well. Like it is a, it's a particular medium has particular affordances and constraints and then switching and composing in another medium helps us see that, you know, we can see the constraints and affordances of video more clearly if we're not as used to working with it. And then we can take that same critical lens and put it back on writing, which has been alphabetic writing, which has been a bit more naturalized for us. I mean, certainly there's, there's some filmic vocabulary uh, that one could be teaching um, you know, I have done some stuff around shot composition and kind of rule of thirds and thinking through camera angles and and and, uh, and things like that. Though I tend to build that kind of vocabulary with students less through like an explicit kind of teaching of cinematography and teaching of kind of filmic terms and more through a collective rhetorical analysis of what we see as successful videos within a genre. 
and what we think makes them that way, using kind of whatever words make sense to us. And, you know, I, I can certainly see value in the other approach. I mean, I've taught, I've taught like, a film analysis class way back in the day. <laughs> and certainly that, learning that vocabulary and teaching that vocabulary has helped me. But you have to make choices about sort of what you have time. And, you know, a part of me thinks that the reflective consideration of questions of rhetoric, audience and composing process, drawing upon a kind of composition and writing studies, disciplinary background, is what I bring to the teaching of video. And I, I don't think that's enough to become an amazing video producer, but I think it's a piece that anyone who's going to make a video could benefit from having. Um, but I certainly would be encouraging them to take video courses uh, with people who are going to bring entirely different lenses. Um, you know, one thing I would emphasize is that I think alphabetic writing is definitely a crucial part of the video making process. Um, I see it in terms of scripting. You know, I do a lot of work with um, voiceover or performance. Um, even though I don't think reading a script is necessarily the best idea, certainly doing work in scripting can be a way to conceptualize a project. Um, I think reflection in text form can be a great way to be thinking about these questions of rhetoric and process. Um, I also see it as, as really valuable to be attempting to make an argument in writing and video at the same time as a way to um, have that kind of reflection about the affordances and constraints of each. And so I see them as really working together. And I want to emphasize, I see it as, as working the other way too, that ideally video can play a role in... Uh, as a kind of informal composing for alphabetic writing. Um, you know, I mean, I've played around with students doing video responses to readings or kind of the option to do a proposal for an essay as a quick, as a quick talking head video. Because you can now, you know, turn on the camera right in YouTube and do it pretty seamlessly, again, you know, with access to a high-speed internet connection. Uh, that's an important limitation. As well as um, a webcam as well as a webcam, um, but it's certainly that's becoming a lot more possible. I feel like than it was early on when I was working with video to actually integrate video as a kind of informal writing or a really quick scheme, screencast, you know, make a, the visual version of your argument in three images with voiceover. Um, it's something, you know, you can do in a half hour. <laughs> like, there are you know, there are technologies out there that enable that, and so I think that that's... And that's, that's also a kind of advice um, that I would have, you know, especially to teachers thinking about um, teaching video for the first time, is you don't necessarily have to start with a huge video project. You can also think about some more low-stakes ways to integrate video into something else you're already doing and then sort of build towards that project. If you're interested in learning more from Jason, you can find him at at Jason Palmieri on Twitter. There's always his wonderful remixing composition book that Kyle has already plugged, which is just a great, inspiring way to kind of just get into multimodality. And he also addresses video specifically in that book. Also, an upcoming project from him is Lessons from History, Teaching with Tech in 100 Years of English Journal. This is a co-authored piece with Ben McCorkle where they kind of review 100 years of English Journal and all the different ways um, multimodal and 
tech projects have been taught, and at different moments he kind of engages very specifically with video in that project. I, I love those projects that you hear about and you say like, like, why didn't I do this? Why? Like, this sounds like the most fun research to do ever is to go back through 100 years of English journal and check this stuff out. So I'm really, really excited. I am too. I, I know about the same as you, other than that they like looked through them and coded them. And then it's all gone in this black box that hopefully we get to see in 2016. Awesome. So with that, let's move into part two, scripting our way to video. And in this part, I really want to turn back to co-editor John Silvestro. And uh, John's here with me. I want to ask about his assignment, specifically what he does. And John, you uh, shared a couple of student samples with me. So tell me a little about the assignment, what, where that came from, what, what you're up to. Yes. So as I talked about kind of in the introduction, like I had thought about video and I kind of backed away. And so the way I found into video was to do scripting, literally kind of the written genre of movie scripts where people kind of write about the headings, they give characters dialogue, they write descriptions. And it's all writing um, as in fingers on the keyboard, but it's also all entirely rooted on like visualizing things and creating, thinking about sounds and thinking about how this would actually look. So what you're making me think of is, is this one time I, I heard J.J. Um, Abrams and Damon Lindelof say that if we ever read a script from Lost, we would all be really surprised at how much cussing there was. And because there, there was so, so many curse words that they used to kind of say big effing explosions and things like that as they were kind of describing the things that the viewers actually see on screen. So it, it, you're making me think of the, the way that scripts, uh, they do lead to actual visuals, but they're, they're in some ways different too. Okay, but keep, keep going. Tell, tell me more about what, what you actually ask students to do. Right. So what I always use scripts as is this transition point right. that they've written a research essay or they've kind of defined um, a theory of digital rhetoric, which is kind of what we'll get to with this first one. And they've done it as an essay. Okay. With the five paragraphs, or not really the five paragraphs, but you know, the introduction, the body, and the conclusion. Sure. And then we pause, and then we start looking at videos um, from YouTube, but also kind of scenes from movies. And then I kind of drop on them, all right, well, here's what they did before they got there. Right. Here's the scripts. Here's what they were kind of they were writing first. And so from that, I say, all right, take your idea and think about it as if it was a video, something on YouTube or a scene in a movie. But then let's do this transition point. So let's, just so just like a like a it's so easy to look at a finished essay, for instance, and think, oh, that's just a final finished project. Like this this was birthed completely perfect from the author's head. Uh, but obviously we know that there's work that went into it. It sounds like you're you're doing a little of that same kind of work. You're saying, wait, 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 wait. This wasn't just birthed as this perfect movie. Like there there was steps and work and drafts and, and things that went into it beforehand. That's really cool. Right. It's a great way to kind of continue, like, I think a very common, like, under theme in first year compositional writing courses is process. Right. And really just thinking through how do we go from A to B to our final text? Let me ask, what, what kind of um, videos did you show them to, to get them into this? Because I'm thinking of, like, the genre of your feature film isn't an easy match for, let's talk about digital rhetoric. But, but I'm sure there are, like, some YouTube videos and some other things that that would more easily kind of get into the kinds of things they could, could script. Yes. Um, so some of the ones I love to show is um, Kirby Ferguson's 
kind of mini documentary slash video essay, Everything's a Remix. Yeah, I love that. Love that too. Also, there is a professional editor who creates these, has this kind of ongoing Vimeo project called Everything's a Painting. Okay. And he kind of, a lot of it is him breaking down how scenes work, but also kind of like doing that in his own video and really kind of demonstrating it with the film. Cool. And he has a really great one on uh, video essays. Nice. And so then I also just kind of asked my students, what are, you know, the most recent movies you've watched? And then we kind of, from them, look at scenes that they've, for the most part, all seen and that I can also find semi-illegally on YouTube. Sure. And so finally, the final note I want to note is that there is what's called IMSDB, the Internet Movie Script Database. I've never even heard of it. (laughs) Yes. um, It's this wonderful resource where a lot of popular feature films have their kind of final shooting script. Okay. And so you can kind of go there, pick a scene, and then essentially show that scene and have students kind of side-by-side looking at the scripts as the descriptions, the character dialogue, alongside the projected actual scene that kind of came to the finished product. Cool. So so I know you've shared a couple of these with me. What's, what's this first one we're going to hear? What was the assignment that it was completed? So this first one was, again, part of my advanced digital rhetoric course. And it was, again, taking their theory of digital rhetoric, which they had already defined in an essay, and then for kind of the very final project was make it a movie script. And so this first student did a really kind of, I loved it, very personal project where she was just kind of thinking about her daily life with digital rhetoric. And, and I'm really excited to, to play this example of her, her daily life. I think it's a good one. But I think beforehand, we should say something about what listeners are going to hear, right? Because the, the student turned in yeah. an actual text script, but uh, we're not going to hear it in her voice, are we? No, what you're going to hear is a recording I did um, with a few friends, including myself, where we actually did what's called like a table read of the script, where we read it out loud, I played the narrator, and other people kind of read different parts. Um, And this is another resource that I'm going to use in this coming semester. It's called the Blacklist Table Reads, where they do this with unproduced movie scripts, where they kind of like cast them and read them out loud. Um, and basically turn them, I think they call them, into audio movies. I, I almost want to like have that party at my house. <laughs> you know, or, hey, everyone come over and let's sit around and let's um, eat some soup and drink some wine and read some scripts out loud together. Um, read um, A New Hope out loud yeah. and see who gets cast as Chewbacca and gets the easy job. I met a guy at a Halloween party who was not dressed as Chewbacca but gave me the very best sound I'd, I'd ever heard. I was, I was really impressed. Okay, we should probably hear from your student. Yes. (laughs) All right. Scene one. Starts off zoomed in on the cover of a journal, open to a page littered with scribbled, handwritten notes. We then zoom out and see that the journal is on a desk. Next to the journal is an everyday planner. We zoom into the planner and look at some of the dates. We see the last date where someone wrote Photoshop workshop. We then zoom back out to the desk. There is a laptop on it. Zoom into the laptop where there is Google Calendar up. We go to the next date in the calendar. Poetry reading. Scene two. The calendar closes to see that the user has multiple tabs open. The camera pans to the next tab, which is Facebook. We look at the news feed, which is filled with updates and pictures. We see a picture of four friends huddled together laughing. 
We zoom back out to the desk where we see a photo frame with a picture of the same four friends dressed for a night out. Scene three. Zoom out more to the desk where there is a ball of purple yarn wrapped around knitting needles, a scarf in progress. Zoom to the laptop. We observe that the laptop has a few physical post-it notes stuck to it, where Pinterest is pulled up to a step-by-step instruction for making a scarf. We switch tabs to Twitter, where we see tweets by the same person. One is a blog that has just been posted. We see the mouse click on the link to the blog. It is titled, Crafting My Way. Um, we should say really quick that we're, we're not sharing the name of this student on purpose. That, that's not just an accident that we forgot to mention the author of that. Right. I, when I got IRB approval to get these students' scripts um, and all of their work from this course, I gave them the option to not give me their name, to basically submit it anonymously. All of the scripts we will be hearing today were submitted through this kind of form. Totally great. Yeah, I, I just as long as we're we're honoring their their wishes, it feels good. Uh, now we're going to hear a, a longer one next, and I know this one's a, a little bit different. What do you? How do you want to prep this for us? Right. So this one came from a first year composition course where a student had here at Miami. We have these inquiries, and the third one is a long research paper where the students kind of do certain levels of research, both um, academic and public, and then come to some kind of new argument, new position that they had then before they had started the project. And so then what I do is, much like I described before, I kind of show them scripts, I show them videos, and then I ask them to take that and turn that into a script. And so with this one, I had also taught Sergei Eisenstein and his theories of montage and kind of how images are used. He said that film is completely neutral until it is cut. And then it has meaning. Hmm. And so based on that theory, I taught editing and filmmaking. And so this student, what I love about the script um, is the way the student tries to play with montage and play with cutting and play with editing. Cool. However, I note that this came out of a research paper um, that the student reached a conclusion and argument that I didn't necessarily personally agree with but that he had found a way to kind of articulate this idea, this position, both as an essay, but then as this kind of like crazy out there video. Happens to all of us, yeah, (laughs) where we don't don't always agree with the student, but still, they they create awesome stuff. Exterior, black screen. TV violence. Black and white image of bandit firing at the audience at the end of the great train robbery. Whether it's a cop show, a vigilante crusade, or a horror rerun, your chances of encountering blood splatters, screams, and bodies is greater than ever before. Sound effects. A chainsaw revs and revs. A machine gun fires into a crowd. Black screen. TV violence isn't lawless. The FCC regulates TV content with surprisingly detailed stipulations. But even within violent shows, there's a code of sorts. A kind of justification for violence. Tony Soprano sits in his psychiatrist's office. We're soldiers. Soldiers don't go to hell. Young kids walk down the sidewalk. But the reasoning that leads to hyperviolent programs' permissibility is the same reasoning that is leading children and adults to enact violence on others. TV violence is eroding society's sensitivity to real violence, and we are all at risk of this trend. Black screen. 
The Founding Fathers mill around the Bill of Rights. The greatest philosophers of democracy stress that violence isn't the problem. The problem is who should be given the right to use violence or coercive power. Iconic image of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. And while the philosopher founders of this country used quite a bit of technically illegal violence, they established a system that vests the power of violence in only the government. Today, we do acknowledge the right to defend oneself with deadly force when life is threatened. Image of soldiers storming the beach at Normandy. But even this small grant of extra-legal violence is highly limited and controversial. Image of police officers using excessive force. Just as the Zimmerman case demonstrated, sometimes government misuses its power, and what was meant to protect society can, in rare instances, wound it. Cops open our logo. But shows that dramatize the violence of the law stand to paint police in a broad, heavy-handed brush. People can, and do, begin to distrust the law as the legitimate use of violence. Image of L.A. race riots from above. Black screen. And what happens when people lose confidence in the state to arbitrate justice? Unfortunately, some look to a form of tribalism as a source of authority or protection. Scene of the Sons of Anarchy sitting at their meeting table. But television excuses this and develops violent programs about motorcycle gangs that do all the good justice the sheriff is prevented from pursuing. When our heroic gang members like Jack, shot of Jackson's face from Sons of Anarchy, Tony, scene of Tony Soprano's face, and Michael, scene of Michael Corleone's face, attack fellow criminals, we are encouraged to support their actions because they're performing some sort of due justice. This invites gun-toting individuals to make their own judgments on justice, circumventing official law and order. Scene of the Jack Bauer menacing a criminal. Fictional police violence is part of the problem, too. Characters like Jack Bauer are great models of public servitude and sacrifice, but they hide the confliction and pain assumed by real officers in aftermath of violent police action. Image of a police officer crying at a memorial service. TV violence is desensitizing, but it also masks the psychological costs of violence, costs our wise founding fathers hope to contain in the executors of law enforcement. Black screen. Sound effects of a 21-gun salute at a soldier's funeral. But society's fascination with violence is misplaced and dangerous. Scene of Sandy Hook Elementary students and teachers running from the building. The threat we face as a society curious about violence is plain and unhidden. In the aftermath of school shootings and gang wars, we talk about taking away guns or catching killers in counseling programs. But what's needed now is a national resensitizing to violence. Scene of police conducting a house raid. We owe it to our children, our communities, and our law enforcement officers. Black screen. Words in white over a black background. Those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. Okay, so so help me think this through. What what what's some of the interesting theory that's or, maybe, or if not theory, what's what's something interesting that's happening here? Where with the text being remixed uh, into something that we're we're not putting into the mode that it was designed for, right? We're not putting this into a video we're making. We're just putting it into to audio itself. What what's going on here? 
What I think we're hearing from here, at least when I heard that, I was thinking back to something, Sergei Eisenstein, who was also a teacher, Hmm. um, and so why I kind of love to go to him for thinking about video projects and film projects, is that in his essay called A Course on Treatment from his larger book, Film Form, he talks about that the only way to learn one art form, and we can kind of extend, extend that to like modes or extend that to kind of genres, he says the only way to learn one art form is to study it in comparison with other forms. Hmm. And so what I think we're doing here is we're taking the student who is comparing kind of the essay to film through the script, and then we're kind of comparing the script to kind of the audio play or the podcast. So Eisenstein would say that we're actually better able to understand both by doing both. Exactly. Um, He... He was overly dedicated to film, but kind of came to it through theater. And so he was, even the idea of montage, which is so central to him, came from him thinking about the ways actors kind of moved across the stage and created different juxtapositions with their body. Interesting. Something Sergei Eisenstein said also in his kind of introduction to film form, when he was kind of pulling the whole book together, he said, cinema, and we'll asterisk that and say video for our purposes, cinema is able more than any other art to disclose the process that goes on microscopically in all other arts. Hmm. And so that makes me think back to when you were kind of talking about using Camtasia and using these different things to kind of get at video, but also to really just think about writing. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we just did was we took the writing our, my students had used to think about video, to think about film, to kind of flip it back. We were thinking about those scripts through podcasts, mm-hmm. through sound, to kind of rethink about that, think about these processes at their most kind of, as Eisenstein says, microscopic level. And so I think there's that kind of tension there between those kind of things, like what are we actually doing versus what are we thinking we're doing or what do we hope to create absolutely so you you've got me intrigued and um, i'm hoping that a lot of other people are thinking okay i think this might be a way that i could start to in a really intriguing way play around with the mode of video Uh, but of course a lot has already been written not just on the scripting part but on like the actual use of actual video in a composition kind of context So for that, I want to transition into part three, Crystal's review of video scholarship. And I say Crystal because this is a piece that was produced by Crystal Van Coten, Assistant Professor of Writing and Rhetoric at Oakland University. Crystal is one of those super smart people who knows a lot about video and uses it both in her research and in her classroom. So I'm really excited to see what she has to say about where we can turn if we want to learn more. Here's Crystal. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Crystal Van Coten, Assistant Professor of Writing and Rhetoric at Oakland University. I started teaching video composition in my own writing courses about seven years ago when I was a first-year PhD student at the University of Michigan. And I started doing video in my courses with a trial and error pedagogical method or model, you could say. So what that meant was I tried things. I designed some lessons for video. I asked my students to compose. I looked at what they did and what they composed and what they created. And then I reflected over my pedagogy and I revised as I went and tried something new the next time. 
Um, but what I've learned in the seven years since I started doing that is that there are a couple of sources in the field that have helped me um, to set out a theoretical and practical framework for how and why I use video in my first-year composition classes in particular. So um, I'd like to share some of those sources with you today in this podcast. Um, when I think of video composition in the first-year writing classroom, though, one of the most important questions that comes to my mind is the why question, which I've been asked a lot. <laughs> so the why question is, why would you choose to ask students to compose on video, in a, especially in a first-year writing class, versus in another format that might be at their disposal, a format like an essay, for example, or a website, or a blog post? So in thinking about this why question, three sources come to mind that have helped me to set out what I, what I would call a theoretical base for video composition in my own writing courses. And these have helped me to know how to answer the why question when I get it in much more specific ways. So the first source that helps me to answer the why question is Sarah Arroyo's book um, from t 2013 called Participatory Composition, Video Culture, Writing, and Electricity. Um, Arroyo's book offers a large, expansive framework for composing with video, and it's a framework that I think could be used for an entire course and not just a single project. So she draws on Gregory Ulmer's theories of electricity, and she studies and she outlines the unique communities and the cultures and the composing practices that have arisen out of online video, particularly video that is on YouTube. And Arroyo provides a framework for online and digital video projects that situates them amongst this participatory culture of YouTube and file sharing websites. So one answer to the why question is related to Arroyo's notion of participation. Um, video is one way for students to enter the conversation, to participate, and then to speak within and among communities. Second, Jody Shipka's book, Toward a Composition Made Whole, also offers a large framework for composition that suits an entire course like first-year writing. So Shipka introduces her theory and pedagogy of what she calls individuals acting with mediational means. And this pedagogy requires students to search out and compose with multiple materials for specific purposes. So these materials can include t-shirts, for example, the packaging for toys, abandoned grocery lists, even rocks. <laughs> um, and in terms of first-year writing pedagogies, Shipka's framework could be used for a course that would then include a video project in which students select and compose with various materials and modalities. So a second answer that I give to the why question of video composition in a writing course is um, around surrounding Shipka's notion of composing within and across multiple media but for specific purposes. Video becomes one medium that allows for this action across multiple modes. And third, um, Bump Halberder's book, Mike's Camera's Symbolic Action, Audio-Visual Rhetoric for Writing Teachers, um, approaches the teaching of what he calls AV writing or audio-visual writing. Um, and it approaches AV writing specifically through a focus on learning goals and realizing learning goals for students. Um, these learning goals for Halberter invoke the habits and awareness of writers. And this is the objective then of video assignments is to teach and to develop the writer, um, not to teach the product of video. 
So Halberder uses new forms of composition, the AV writing, as a means for addressing problems that students already have, existing problems, or they could be emergent or persistent problems um, that, that students deal with. And then assessment for Halberder is about the lesson and the learning goals and not necessarily the assignment. So he advocates using movie making as a means to teach writing and writers, and thus the products don't need to be overly scrutinized. The learning does, the learning that the students um, take part in. So a third answer to the why question of video, I think, can be found in Halberder's notion of learning goals and addressing problems through video. Video is a way to learn the habits and the awareness of writers in an alternate space. In addition to addressing the why question relating to video composition in first-year writing, there's also the practicality then of designing lessons for students to help them compose and to learn with video. So I'll offer two additional sources that can help you think through designing particular video composition activities, and these sources have been helpful for me too as I do the same. So the first is Stuart Selber's Multipart Framework for Multiliteracies, and the second is my own list of four writing and rhetorical concepts within which students can develop what I call meta-awareness about composition through video. So first, Selber's framework for multiliteracies is often cited in the field, um, and this, is, this framework is from his book, Multiliteracies for a Digital Age. Um, the framework has three parts, functional, critical, and rhetorical literacies. Functional literacy is organized by the computers as tools metaphor, where students are users of technology with effective computer use as the goal. Critical literacy, then, is organized by the computers as cultural artifacts metaphor, and students become questioners of technology who take part in informed critique. And finally, rhetorical literacy uses the computers as hypertextual media metaphor, and students learn to be producers of technology with reflective praxis as the objective. So I use um, this FCR framework, Functional, Critical, and Rhetorical Framework, um, when I think about how I design my activities for video composition and the lessons that we do in class. So I start with functional. What functional skills and functional literacies do my students need to be able to make a video? And we start there. So what software programs do they need to know how to use? Um, what interfaces do they need to know how to work with? And maybe there's one, maybe there's more than one. Are there other tools that they need to be familiar with, like a video camera or like the video recording function on their phone. These, to me, are all functional literacies, questions, and problems. So that's one area that I design lessons to address. How can we get some functional skills and functional literacies for video making? Then I turn to critical. What critical literacies do they need to develop as they compose video? Where can they take part in informed critique, for example, both of the tools that they're using and how they're designed and of the systems that they're learning about to distribute their content? And then finally, we talk about rhetorical literacies. Um, wh which rhetorical literacies are important for video making? How can we encourage um, students to focus on rhetorical concepts, things like audience and purpose and appeals to logos, pathos, ethos, and kairos, for example, and doing that through video? How do rhetorical appeals shift when they're in video versus when they're in a written essay? 
So we talk about all of those. So Selber's three-part framework is one way that I have found um, very useful as I organize and design lessons for video composition in first-year writing. Finally, one overarching goal that I have for students in all of my writing courses, but for my first-year writing students in particular, is the goal of developing what I call meta-awareness about composition. So meta-awareness about composition, for me, is revealed through an ability to reflect on awareness of rhetorical choices that are made through writing and language, but they're also made through multiple modes of expression, like visuals, sounds, movements, and combination of these modes, modes that students are using when they compose um, on video. So in a forthcoming article that will be in Composition Forum soon, which is entitled Identifying Components of Meta-Awareness About Composition Toward a Theory and Methodology for Writing Studies, I use a qualitative case study of video in two first-year writing classes to map out four writing and rhetorical concepts within which meta-awareness about composition became observable. And so these four concepts I use now when I design my own activities and lessons for video composition. So the concepts include the following. Number one is process. Number two is techniques. Number three is rhetoric. And number four is what I call intercomparativity. So process is what it sounds like. It's planning, revising, um, getting and giving and receiving feedback. Techniques include... Um, traditional written techniques for writing and also audiovisual techniques such as juxtaposition, using metaphor, using music as rhetoric, etc. Rhetoric then is um, focusing on an understanding of the rhetorical situation, so the reader, the writer, and the text itself and how those interact. And then intercomparativity is an understanding of, of similarities and differences across modes and media. And so what is the same when you compose on a video versus in an essay? And what is different, obviously, because they're not the same thing. They're very different things. So those four techniques offer another way that I think we can approach the design of lessons for video composition, focusing specifically on developing awareness in each of those four categories. That was Crystal Van Coten, Assistant Professor of Writing and Rhetoric at Oakland University. She tweets at Crystal VK. That's Crystal with a C, and then the letters V as in, I don't know, what starts with V? As in video. Oh, my goodness. V as in video, K as in Kyle. Oh, that's really cool. Crystal VK. Uh, <laughs> she also, as she mentioned, has a forthcoming article in Composition Forum called Identifying Components of Meta-Awareness About Composition Toward a Theory and Methodology for Writing Studies. So definitely keep your eye open for that. And with that, John, I think we're just about done. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can plug myself just a little bit. Please um, do. Please do. I can be found at j Silvestro at Twitter. You can reach me at um, my email, which is silvesj2 at miamioh.edu, those lovely academic email accounts. Of course. Um, and also, I can just be found in the bunker, working on my dissertation, shutting out the rest of the world. <laughs> I know all about the bunker. You know, I still have uh, I still have really fond memories of the computer that I used to write my dissertation on because all, all of my mp3s are tagged really well on there and the computer's getting slower and slower but i'm still kind of like when i do sit down at it i'm like oh i like working here this feels this feels really good so you still use that computer i i do sometimes yeah it's, it's kind of like it's up in the office and 
you know, like some programs are on there that I still want to use. If, if I want to play Mist Five, it's only installed on that. So I'm like, okay, uh, let's let's turn on the old PC. <laughs> see, I have dreams to go back to J.J. Abrams of blowing up my computer once the dissertation is done. Big cinematic panoramic shot of the computer exploding, parts flying everywhere, and some kind of grand epic score announcing that this process is done. You can be assured that I'm going to mix in some sounds and and JJ Abrams' music there. I'm just trying to decide: do I do I use like a score from Lost or a score from from Star Trek? I don't, we'll we'll figure something out. Or can you go to Star Wars now, or is that? Ooh, that's a really good question. I don't know. I I don't. Know. We've we've got so many video things that we could talk about. <laughs> we do. We do. Oh. Well, I, I hope people feel inspired and and kind of encouraged to to try some things out i love that we have such a variety of of levels and such a variety of support um and i love having you as a as a resource i i hope you don't mind if if i or other people tweet at you as i'm thinking about about video in the classroom in the future please do i mean i'll be in that bunker twitter will be open on the side but i'll definitely be readily available very exciting so before we, we turn this off, uh, John, can you tell us any, about any other uh, basic resources, things that might really help me in the classroom? Certainly. Um, as I mentioned before, there is the Internet Movie Script Database. Sure. There's also YouTube and Vine- Vimeo, excellent sites for watching video. Um, but also this website, celltex.com, C-E-L-T-X.com. It's this completely free um, browser-based scripting software, kind hmm. of like Final Draft where it just goes – straight into the formatting for you. Oh, wow. And even better, much like Google Docs, you can kind of share across students um, if you want to do collaborative projects. But the bigger thing is it just kind of provides that scripting formatting. And I remember, I haven't really written many scripts in my day, but I do remember my senior year of college trying to do like a mini script in Word, you know, and and actually like centering and typing and changing the margins. And and it it was really, really annoying. So I love the idea of something doing that for me. Yes, Celtex does that for your students and basically saves you the time of teaching your students how to tab and center. Yes, <laughs> which is, you know, sometimes a little harder than you think. I don't know. Tab's always Much harder. funny. <laughs> Much harder. And with that, we're at the end of the episode. You've heard sound effects from freesound.org and some music from Overclocked Remix. That's ocremix.org. You can look at my show notes to see the links to the exact clips that I used. This show is also licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License, which means that you may legally distribute it for free as long as you don't make any money off of it and as long as you give me credit for it. Thanks so much to the people who were involved in this episode, including Jason Palmieri, Crystal Van Coten, and of course, co-editor John Silvestro. Thanks so much. No problem. I totally love working with you, Kyle. I'm Kyle Stedman at Rockford University. If you have ideas for future shows, which is, of course, how this episode happened, John contacted me with all these great ideas, you can always email me at plugsplaypedagogy at writingcommons.org, or you can find me on Twitter, where I'm at kstedman. This is Plugs Play Pedagogy.